I had a lot of coffee, if you're asking. Turn it up a little bit, will you, so I can hear? Ah, yeah. I feel like going a one, and a two, <laughs> and a three. Here we go. Can you groove a little bit? I had too much coffee. I'm a little all amped up. You tell me I'm all amped up, so I'm all you know, amped up. So hold on. Okay, let me. You let grew me, up in California. <laughs> you know, uh, when we started dating, uh, my wife said wait, she wait. was... We started dating? Not, not, not you. It, that was the we in advance of the pronoun, which was my wife. So when we, Got my it. wife and I started dating, not when you and I started dating, although... Praise the Lord. Some people have confused. She was always really embarrassed by me head-bobbing to music out in public. It was, this is in stark contrast. relational problem. This is in stark contrast to myself and my wife and our dating experience, where basically I was the dancer in the family. You were the dancer. I was the dancer in the family. I could uh, really, I could really put a move on that dance floor. <laughs> Back when basically you weren't even born, I was doing the moon dance on Rush Street. The moon dance, in Chicago. That, that that was before the moon walk. That uh, I'm sorry, I should have said the moon walk. Oh, Got me. Showing how old you are. Oh my. Anyways, it's good to be back on the Theology on Mission podcast. Amen to that. You're Jeff Holesclaw. Uh, yes. I'm Dave Fitch. We're, we're not good. dating, but we are a good We're not dating, but man, are we glad to be together here uh, talking with you all out there in podcast land. Absolutely. What's, today? Absolutely. What's today? Do you have any announcements for us today before we start? Uh, no, no announcements. This is the last of the summer episodes. So we're going to be keeping it short. We're going to keep uh, the segments out of it, uh, but they're coming back. So we're going to do some Fitch versus Fitch next week. We're going to do some What You Reading. And we have a new segment, a new, a new listener participation segment that I'm still working on. That's going to be both listener participation, but also a contest where we'll be giving away books and even a grand prize at the end of this year to be on this podcast and to interview the very we're Dave looking, Fitch. And we're, we're all waiting with bated breath and anticipation because we know you spent the whole summer thinking this up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we absolutely. better be good. So this is the last of the summer episodes. So what are we talking about today? Well, I don't know uh, how to segue, but we're going to be talking about gender stereotypes, gender differences. How to navigate gender. Church. It's got to be one of, if not the most hot topics, key issues, something we're all faced with, whether we have children in school, whether we are engaging people uh, struggling through this in our congregations. It's the topic of navigating gender and gender relations in this crazy world we live in. And so, so uh, Dave, you and I both have sons. Yes. Max is your son. I have two sons, Soren and Tennyson. And, right. and we... You have continued on this tradition, but for many, many a moon, many a year at Life of the Vine, you took uh, all a bunch of us to a men's retreat, a father-son weekend, where we got a certain um, education, possibly indoctrination. It was into a typical a, a man weekend of gender. So why don't you fill that out for us? Well, it was a typical man weekend, and you know, frankly, uh, there was a little bit of uh, over-the-top, maybe excessive machismo in exhibit at this father-son retreat. And uh, I remember we'd do things like uh, do stuff to stuff. We'd shoot guns. We'd, uh, what else would we do? Dominion. Dominion. From, Dominion. From Genesis 1, I guess, we're supposed to have dominion yeah. over okay, all so the all world. These, I would say excessive gender stereotypes, maybe uh, gone to the extreme for the sake of humor and other things. 
And frankly, Certainly, some of them probably went a little bit over the top, inappropriate. And I remember uh, some of our wives getting unhappy about it when they heard about this. Do you? Do you remember that? Yeah, I think some more than others, for sure. Yeah, and, and what, what I think it illustrated for me is we'd come home and we'd have this space where we'd work out all these things that we were not. We were not this coercive, violent, excessive, machismo stereotype of men versus the docile, passive, um, uh, over-soft uh, uh, gender, feminine gender stereotype. We didn't believe in that, but then we had to come up with something that we did believe in. And this, I contend, is, uh, you know, we're, we're all in this space where we are reacting to misogyny, gender stereotypes, patriarchies as inherited from our parents' various fundamentalisms, and we reject these these essentializing things we do with gender that lock women and men into certain roles and see them in certain demeaning ways. And we come out of this space and we say, we sure as heck are not going to do that again. We're not that. But what are we going to do? What are we going to do when, we, when it comes to gender formation and the forming of gender roles, characteristics? Are we going to say there is no gender? Are we going to uh, be intentional in the way we guide and shape gender? What's your what's your take on that? Well, yeah, some of my observations are, and I was thinking while you were saying that, the who is this all of us and we? So there's uh, being professors here at Northern Seminary and the churches and movements that we're a part of. We're obviously egalitarian in a certain understanding of women, men and women in ministry. I don't prefer the term egalitarian. You're right. Sorry, blessed alliances, mutuality in genders. Right. And so we certainly don't have a strong hierarchical or others would say patriarchal kind of viewpoint. And so um, who do kind of have strong understandings of gender roles and what uh, men and women should do? The men should protect and provide and pursue the three Initiate. P's of masculinity. Right. Mas- uh, and so there's those ones. So but for us, the two of us and probably many of our listeners, we're like, well, we're trying to move out of that space. And so, well, where do we go? And so but. There's not a lot of direction there about where to go. Um, oftentimes, I just hear the reduction of gender differences to something like, well, we should just all be Jesus-like. We should be Christ-like. Being a, a man or a woman just means being Christ-like. Goes, well, yeah, certainly that's a start, and that's good, and that's desirable. But is that really enough? Is that enough for our discipleship of our children, of our two sons, but also the daughters that are in our congregations, the daughters that we are raising? And so how can we... Uh, affirm or understand gender differences or should we should we even start should we yeah. and affirm so, gender differences and so that's really, my question to you Dave Fitch. so amidst this space which i feel we're all caught up in uh that is we are not those excessive generalizing gender stereotype people there's an urge to dismiss and throw out all gender distinction uh, you know, throw it all out with the proverbial bathwater because of the intense harm that those gender stereotypes have done. And yet, few actually do. So I contend that the way to start, the way to open up space is to ask the question, do you, uh, are you, do you accept gender distinction? Do you think there is a difference between men and women? Is there female, male? You know, at the bottom core, even in, let's say, the transgender conversation, there is still 
an understanding of what it means to be man, what it means to be woman, as, you know, kind of uh, the metaphor for that is uh, Caitlyn Jenner on the cover of Vanity Fair with a particular version of what she sees as woman being played out on that cover and in her life. She still has an idea of what it means to be woman and man. And so the question we all start with is, is there any difference between male and female? I suggest that's where we first start and ask that question. If we can all agree there is some difference, then we get, then we have to go to the next question. Well, what is that difference? Well, what is the basis on which we can make that difference kind of known? Or how do we distinguish between genders? Uh, and so there's kind of a spectrum of options, right? So you, we kind of talk, you kind of express these three options, the essentialist option or the self-expressive option. And then there's like this cultural Linguistic different option. cultural linguistic options, and everybody knows I kind of play off those the the, the three uh, types: essentialist or propositional, self-expressive, experiential, or cultural linguistic are basically off of uh, George Lindbeck's old book, uh, the uh, oh boy, what is it? Uh, nature of doctrine. Yes, nature George of doctrine, Lindbeck. and that those those by the way those ideas have been kind of played off of and developed extensively. Yeah, uh, but it's still a good place to start. And so normally we get the essentialist, somebody who says, hey, this is the way it is. Men men are this way. Men are the people who are strong and go out and get a job. Women are this way. They are the soft, nurturing women, and they are to stay home and take care of the children. And this is the economy, and this is the, what God has said, and women need to submit to men and all that stuff. The essentialist, this is the way it is. This is built into creation. It's the way it is, the way things are, essentialism. This is linked usually to Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, God made... Uh, men and women in his image. But then in the garden in Genesis 2, there's the creation of Adam and Eve, and it seems to be this naturalistic, essentialistic creation ordinance of uh, order between male and female. The man is, is first, he's the head, he is the initiator, the dominating one, and domination doesn't have to be negative, so it could be like the caring, nurturing, the woman is more relational, is uh, childbearing, and all these different types of things. And so it goes back to nature, it goes back to an essential, as you said, kind of grouping of different things that uh, cannot be changed and definitely do not arise because of cultural factors. So that's the essentialist side. Yeah, so so then the, the second group, uh, and, I, and I argue so many times this is the way theology works, uh, at least in the modern frame, but so often we go from essentialism or propositionalism to a second group which is reacting to the first group, and they are what I call the self-expressives, the experiential self-expressivist, and here gender for these folks, and again, I'm overgeneralizing, but gender here is the outworking of who I am, my body, my attractions, my social preferences. These are all natural, given within me, to me, physically, biologically. I must learn how to be engendered in the way that best expresses who I am. And um, this group, by the way, largely rejects the essentialist account of the way gender works. Instead, we got to navigate the discovery of my authentic self. How do I feel? To whom and what am I attracted to? In what gender role am I most comfortable with? And so that's a process of self-discovery and, uh, and of expression, as you said. And so we find this a lot uh, in, well, in all ages, really. This isn't like something that modernity kind of created. But there is the sense that we would, at least you and I would hook this to kind of a consumer-oriented culture 
where expressing yourself is primarily um, externalized through the things we own and the way we act and the kind of personas that we adopt. Well, and let's so not get too distracted by all that uh, because that, that leads into a whole other uh, area of understanding oh, how, ahead. The, how identity is formed. All right, I'm jumping ahead. No, no, no. I'm just saying l- let's just keep it really simple. Admittedly, it's simple. But now uh, I'll go to a third group, and I'll call this the cultural linguistic group. And this group acknowledges, first of all, that much of gender is culturally formed. The way male and female relate is worked out over time in a culture. So the roles take shape. They, uh, they come into, into a form uh, in relation to socioeconomic developments. All of this is, uh, is not disconnected from, you know, the material relations, the, the realities of having a male body versus a female body versus uh, the economic role of work and the way that work works in a society, the way family takes shape and how we raise children. It's all in, in reaction or in relation to that. But the way these differences are worked out um, is cultural uh, or, or largely cultural. You see, I'm not saying it's divorced from the material realities of body and work and family but it is a cultural formation over time. So it's not really a mediating position between the essentialist or the self-expressionist, but it does try to learn from both. Like there is some sort of non-irreducible biological, physical, material factors to gender. But there's also a largely uh, cultural, symbolic, social, even political view of gender, which cannot be reduced just to your self-expressive kind of choices and things like that. So it's it's pulling from both those streams. But in one sense, it's totally different. Right. You know, the, the first group, uh, you know, uh, the first approach, the essentialist approach works when everybody agrees on the defined gender roles, when there's just already a common cultural agreement we're all working from. And all we need to do is reinforce, hey, you, you need to be the man in the house. You need a man up. You need to be the woman. You need to support your man. You know, everybody already agrees it's working and blah, blah, blah. Um, the problem is when those gender types are challenged, and then uh, often the essentialists turn defensive and uh, often the people brought up in those essentialist uh, uh, ways of being raised in gender uh, and can't fit into those hardened, reified forms of gender. They, they can't fit in. They leave feeling judged. They, they f- fall out of the cracks of Christendom, so to speak. And so it doesn't work for those people. So the way I kind of think of these three options, uh, the essentialist, the expressivist, and the cultural linguistic, is that the first two, in a sense, ignore the place of culture, a robust sense of culture. So the essentialists want to deny culture altogether. No, these things have nothing to do with culture. This is, uh, you know, it's either biological or it's evolutionary or it's God at work, as, you know, probably for most of us listeners here. Uh, But then the self-expressionists all want to say, well, we need to be liberated from culture. This is usually how it's kind of expressed is like, oh, culture is holding us back. It's given us these predetermined uh, arenas to kind of express ourselves. And we need need to break out of them. We need to transgress all the different boundaries. We need to do different kinds of things. And so both of them take issue with culture as uh, being kind of this threatening factor, whereas this third group is that I think we're proposing is to say, well, it's inevitable. Like there are cultural forces at work in the constitution of gender and we need to deal with it. Otherwise, we're just going to get in all these cul-de-sacs of essentialism or expressivism. And, and, and frankly, uh, you know, the self-expressivist 
naively, does not take into account the way our desires, the way our roles, the way our attractions are culturally shaped, are born out of a particular understanding and images and metaphors and and uh, uh, role, webs of significance that we are being uh, kind of shaped into so that there's reasons why men and women in the uh, United States try to look like Hollywood uh, archetypes all the time. Without even thinking about it. They Without even that, thinking yeah. about it. It's because they were raised to aspire to what they saw on television every night for those two hours of family television time. And so we're all being shaped, and our desires are being shaped. Yes, they come naturally from the body uh, biologically, but these biological forces and desires are being shaped towards certain ends. And so I feel like the number two option ignores that posture, uh, or not that posture, ignores that, um, uh, that reality of how culture works. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it denies uh, the kind of invisible role of our desires. It de- it de- kind of denies the active influence of advertising and just even different social roles and things like that. And so, in one sense, culture is both. Uh, it's a helpful thing. It's also a hindering thing. It can go both ways. It can it can kind of deform our desires in one way, but it can also transform or form them in another way. It's, but it's it's something that neither the essentialist or self-expressionist usually. Uh, think about and so there's this missed opportunity and there's usually some sort of naivete that that happens in our discipleship of gender right and and so um uh the the bottom line is there is no escaping the cultural forms of gender as given within a culture there is no anybody all you have to do is go to japan go to china go to uh some countries in africa go to rio de janeiro go to europe any place you go, there are distinctive forms of gender that are different, especially from the Eastern world and the Western world. And so we, it's pretty hard to deny uh, that this large part of gender is a f- culture formation and that now we're left with the reality. Here's where we start. We are all born into a culture of gender formation. Absolutely. So then how does the, how does the gospel enter into this? What are some kingdom outlooks or values here? So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm arguing that Christians enter the culture as a culture. We're born. Christians are born with a sea of givens. But the church also has a few, the church has a few guidelines given for gender distinction. Um, I don't want to go into them now, but we could at length maybe in some later podcast. But a few times Paul says man is the head of a woman, but it's not clear what this might mean since Paul says God the Father is the uh, head of Christ the Son. Uh, and unless what do you mean? That's super clear. It means that just as the son is subordinate to the father, so should women be subordinate to men. Right. Unle- uh, you, you've written quite a bit about this. Isn't, isn't that clear? How is that not clear? Isn't uh, Jesus the son subordinate? Unless we are heretics and believe in subordination, oh, okay. we cannot suggest uh, that headship plays a, uh, a hierarchical role. We acknowledge that there are, but we do acknowledge there's, just like there's roles within the economic trinity, there's roles within marriage. But I... Uh, yeah. Okay. Sorry. You said Go economic ahead. trinity, and I almost freaked out because I thought you said something else. Yes. Just as within the economy of salvation, God has portioned off the work, which is one work, and yet it's still the Father, Son, and Spirit working in but different God ways. But God has placed us, each church, each people, into a culture, and we are called to work out what it means to be man and woman. And I suggest three principles. Principle number one our physical bodies matter. Contra, Gnosticism, um, 
uh, affirming the incarnation of God and Christ, all of that tells us our physical bodies, our physical difference between bodies are not inconsequential to our lives together as gender. And, and so, indeed, they're a part of it. So we cannot um, disregard our physical bodies as telling us something about the way we shall learn to live together. We know, by the way, that, say, in industrial economies where uh, the average man went out to work in a steel factory, an auto uh, factory, or some uh, uh, tool and die shop where certain uh, energies and physical strength was valued over other things, that the, that the industrialized economy kind of kind of pushed men out to work and women to stay home, and this nuclear family was invented, which became a consuming unit, consuming meaning uh, able to buy things made from the money of the man who went out and worked in the factory. And yet that became reified into a gender distinction so that when, let's say, the technology economy or the information economy or the service economy started to take shape post-World War II, and uh, the, uh, the attribute of physical strength was less important, and let's say care, nurture, uh, um, ability to think uh, and, and work with people was more valued. Then, of course, women were now pushed out into the workplace. All this redeveloped our ideas of gender, gender roles, and what it meant to be a woman versus a man. Do you, do you agree with me on that? Oh, yeah. I mean, so, so you mentioned cross-culturally uh, just a couple minutes ago about how the different expression of gender is so different across cultures, but just historically within even the Western uh, European uh, North Atlantic culture has changed over in the last 400 years or yeah. even less. It's gone through multiple iterations of what a man might look like or do and feel and relate and what a woman would. And so it's just, it's very fluid. But my point is that the physical bodies are not just ignored. So the industrial economy kind of forced the, uh, the various strengths of the woman body versus the male body to be segregated into various roles. But that changed with information service technology economy, uh, placed different values on different attributes of the, of the physical bodies. All I'm trying to say is our physical bodies matter in the way a culture works out gender roles Absolutely. and distinctions. Absolutely. Otherwise we'd be Gnostic, as you mentioned, denying the body, trying to escape out of our bodies, uh, which is not something that I think the incarnation prompts us and, and, to do. And we all know the various debates about the uh, bodily attributes of a woman versus a man, but even a woman's brain versus a male brain, very much controversial, uh, in dispute as to, you know, Kohlberg versus Gilligan versus some of the uh, second, third wave feminists and their understandings of the way a woman is uh, works versus a male. But the fact is we need to work that out concretely on the ground in relation to the demands of our lives given our concrete circumstances. But taking seriously the gender differences of our physical bodies, that rebounds into the second kingdom value or guideline, which is that there should always be a mutualist or mutualistic relation between the genders, always working right. in partnership. So the second principle is mutuality. The entire trajectory of the history of, of salvation, in my opinion, in Scripture, teaches that hierarchy is a malformation of sin in a culture. It is overturned in Christ, and all hierarchies, all usurping, all violence, all oppression, uh, shall be overturned in Christ. And so we must, as a people, um, seek to overturn patriarchy, hierarchies, oppression, usurping in gender relations. And there is a lot of sin and a lot of violence in our gender relations that we must invite the world out of and into the reconciling work of Jesus Christ to renew and heal gender relations. 
Right. And we see this uh, in the household codes, I think. Uh, in the New Testament, a lot of times people look at the household codes and say, hey, Paul's like just reinforcing the cultural uh, norms of the day, the patriarchal system. He's just giving, you know, the kind of the stamp of approval. But I totally I read that very differently is he says to women and children and slaves the exact same things that everyone else in his culture would have said, which is basically like submit, obey, listen, honor, well, blah, blah, blah. You, but to the men, to the men, before before you jump in, to the men, he totally ratcheted it up like 20 yeah. different notches. And he said, hey, you're a master over so-and-so, but remember, you have a master in heaven. You're supposed to love your wife just like Jesus died for the church. And so to the men who are the head of the household, the masters of the slave, and the fathers of the children, he reiterates and he puts the bar so super high, which no one ever did. No one ever asked anything of the father, of the head of the household, or of the husband. So that's in, uh, and he just rams it down and said, uh, that's in Ephesians 5. You get that in uh, Colossians 4 and different right, other places. Right. And even Peter does the same thing. So it's not just Paul, but right, Peter but, does the same but thing. But Yoder, Yoder's chapter on radical subordination and politics of Jesus talks about how Paul enters a culture. Uh, there is a patriarchy at work. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. And Paul says, oh, yes, but husbands, be willing to die for and give yourselves up for your wives. There's like this affirmation. Mutuality. And then there's this, sub, this uh, subversive reversal that he kind of He goes into the in culture there. and overturns the hierarchy. By the way, uh, in terms of the first principle, our physical bodies matter. First Corinthians 11, when, Paul, when, a, when a woman gets up and preaches, uh, Paul says, wear a head covering over your hair as a authority under you. There was a difference in that culture between the way women wore their hair long and men didn't, and uh, that women to show their hair, long hair, was a sexual act, uh, a seductive sexual act. And so Paul's saying, stay female. Recognize that you are still a female in the way you cover your hair before the congregation. So 1 Corinthians 11, our physical bodies matter. Ephesians 5, gender relations shall be mutualist. And then lastly, Jesus overcomes and heals all antagonisms between the sexes. We, we must understand that the difference between the differences between men and women are not to be worked out out of war. Uh, that, that actually brokenness and abuses of past patriarchies, of all the sins that have been worked upon from men to women and any of vice versa, all the lingering antagonisms between the sexes. We need to make space to for Jesus to come and be healed. And I believe that's what Galatians 3 is all about when, when, when Paul says in the kingdom there shall be neither male nor female. He's not saying uh, differences shall be uh, obliterated. He's not saying no Gentile, no Jew. He's saying no more antagonisms between male and female, between Gentile, Jew. Um, that's he's talking about that transformation. Amen. So what are some? So we're, we've been talking about these three different guidelines of the body, of gender mutuality, and of Jesus overcoming antagonisms. So, in one sense, these are really uh, these are ap- applicable to other kind of theological issues. You're wanting to say that when we enter into culture on just about any issue, that we need to first listen to the culture to see what's going on, but enter in with these different kingdom signposts or guideposts or guidelines or something like that. Yeah. And so, uh, really, I, I, I guess I would call this proclaiming, entering a culture and proclaiming the gospel of the good news in relation to gender relations. Again, our physical bodies matter. Uh, don't dismiss them. Live into them. Gender relations shall be mutual, not hierarchical, patriarchal. 
and all antagonism shall be undone and healed by the proclamation of the forgiveness and reconciliation of Jesus Christ. This shall change the nature of gender relations. Amen. Well, so uh, gender, uh, sexuality, uh, all these different issues certainly are hot topic issues for the evangelical world that you and I mostly populate. Uh, I don't know how many of our listeners identify as evangelical, post-evangelical, pre-evangelical, or uh, evangelical. I don't know. But next week's topic that will be coming up is we're actually going to be talking about uh, some evangelical off-ramps. People have been off-ramping off evangelicals, and we're going to talk about that a little bit, what that might mean, and how we can think about that as the church and as ministry leaders. Uh, so be ready for that, all of you listeners. Also, I want to make a quick announcement. Missio Alliance, this is right in line with our discussion today. Missio Alliance is hosting a conference called She Leads. It's a conference for both men and women. It's She Leads, Reclaiming the Blessed Alliance for Faithful Witness. Uh, it is um, on October 29th here in Chicago, here right here at Northern, uh, Northern Seminary, at the Lindner Conference Center. But there's also regional venues. So if you're in Seattle... Los Angeles, Kansas City, Dallas, or Nashville. There are going to be different regional venues, and so you'll be able to check it out with a group of people through a live feed of what's happening here in Chicago. And I believe there's also going to be some like home groups that could catch this live feed too. So it's going to be live streaming nationally, but you can also be in person in these different locales. So you should definitely check it out. Go to missioalliance.org slash slash she leads. Again, that's missioalliance.org slash she leads check it out october 29th that's only about uh that's about two months away here in chicago and beyond so you should definitely check that out anything else you want to add today dave well i just want to say we've talked we've covered a lot of material very quickly and probably uh it's controversial material sure to have be open to misunderstanding if there are any questions or stuff you got put them on the on the Podcast, Facebook page, Facebook page, which but is, also come to She Leads. We'll have time to talk. I'm writing a book on this, uh, you know, you know, working through authors like Rosemary Hennessy and Judith Butler and a lot of other authors. So I got I got a lot of uh, like things I like to Ooh. work out with people. So I ask just had questions. a brainstorm. This is like, what if we did a pre-conference morning podcast with great. like listeners? Any of you all who want to come out. We'll just do like a live podcast with major, audience. major That'd women be sweet. leaders. We'll uh, see. We'll talk to J.R. So. Roscoe or Chris Backard, our faithful leaders of Missy Alliance. We'll talk to him about it. That's a good idea, though. So that's all for uh, today. Theology on Mission Northern Seminary, not to be confused with the Griffith Conference Room. We're in this uh, little, little, little room you put <laughs> together, uh, which I hate, but we're here still at Northern Seminary. We're signing over and out. Jeff Holsclaw and Dave Fitch. See you next time.